What's the difference between broadcasting news on radio versus TV? Also, if you face the possibility of a change of career, having worked in the same organisation for over 25 years, how would you handle it? Let's find out. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. It's Ian Cleverdon here, and welcome to the final interview of this series in which we've dived into various aspects of the creative arts. We've spoken to musicians, actors, authors and others about their careers and what advice they would give someone wishing to pursue a career or develop their hobby in the wide-ranging fields of the arts and culture. If you're new to the series, please follow it on whichever streaming platform you use and go back and have a listen to the rich archive of over 30 interviews and compilations. I mentioned the word organisation in the introduction. That's probably incorrect, as today we're actually discussing a British institution, the British Broadcasting Corporation. I'm ending this series by chatting with a titan of the British broadcasting industry and the creative arts, none other than the ex-director general of the BBC, Lord Tony Hall. Tony grew up in Birkenhead in Merseyside and after studying at university ended up working for the BBC in their Belfast newsroom at the height of the Troubles in the early 1970s. He worked his way up through the BBC, a journey of which you'll hear about today. He's also been Chief Executive of the Royal Opera House, Chair of the Board of Trustees for the National Gallery in London and became a life peer in the House of Lords as a crossbench member in 2010 with a passion for supporting the development of arts and culture. I was thrilled when Tony agreed to make time to chat to me about his career journey, lessons learned and also share his passion and thoughts for the future of the creative arts. Lord Tony Hall, thank you very much for joining Half Hour Mentor. My pleasure. I want to start off by asking you a question, ask all my guests at the start of the episodes, and that's going back to your teenage years. What was the very first job you wanted to do? I wanted to be an, <laughs> I wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, I was absolutely fascinated by archaeology. Um, my dad and mum used to take us up to Hadrian's Wall once a year to go visit an uncle who lived, an aunt who lived up there. And uh, I was just fascinated by history and by finding out more about history and uh, th that's what I, I wanted to be. And then when I went into the BBC, I went. I was on the World Tonight, and I went to see a rescue archaeology team uh, in uh, Oxford, as it happens. And the guy, and I said this to the to the guy who was running this rescue bid, and he said, um, "Do you know what's really involved in archaeology? You're kind of you could be, you know, uh, um, a metre high in in dark, horrible water. You don't know where it's been. There could have been rats or whatever doing stuff, and or it's cold, and you're scraping things away and all that." I still find an immense romance in archaeology and that sense of discovery and finding out about people's lives who are, you know, remote from yourselves. But then suddenly you come across something which binds you to you in the present. So that's what I wanted to be. And then after that, I thought, no, I'd, I'd, um, I, I mean, I tried playing first violin, then guitar. And I thought, this, this is not, you know, I love it, but it's still never going to make a career out of that. And then uh, I came on to broadcasting because I just love broadcasting. I think broadcasting matters. It's so important. And also you can keep you can keep asking questions of people, you know, I mean, you, 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 I think curiosity is a great thing. I don't know about you, but I just think the ability to keep asking questions about life, about people is so important. And um, broadcasting allowed me to do that. And other things I tried at university. And that's your by the way, one of the things university. If you are lucky to go there then uh, I think it gives you a chance. I think the most important thing, of course, is your degree. But the most important thing, really, is the chance to experiment on things that then you can work out what you want to do. I mean, I remember directing plays. I wrote in reviews. 
uh, did some student journalism and it helps you to, you know, without any um, great import, you can find out where you really do want to spend your time. So from archaeology, I ended up uh, joining the BBC. Fantastic. Yeah, it's that sort of extracurricular work that really helps you there. And uh, I think one, one thing you said there too about archaeology, in a way, the discovery aspect, you've done that through your career, which we'll examine shortly, uh, just, you know, through news and, uh, you know, what, everything else. Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 I just think that that's one of the great things about life is learning stuff you don't know um, and finding yourself in positions where, you know, you, you you sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable, but you're you're but you're finding out new things. And I and I, I think the problem with life is it's too short, and there are too many things that you really want to know and get involved in. Uh, I, I think, and that's both exciting uh, and also a challenge. So that led me off into broadcasting um, uh, and journalism, and um, you know, because you can keep asking questions. You know, the most important thing is curiosity, isn't it? David? Absolutely. Well, let's explore that now because you went to Oxford, didn't you? Do um, is it philosophy, politics, uh, economics, PPE? Uh, and then uh, uh, into straight into news and straight into the BBC. But it was Belfast, I think, you started, wasn't it, in the newsroom? I did. Well, I was amazingly lucky. Um, one, because um, going to university, I'm the first in my family to go to university. It was all paid for by uh, the local authority. Um, you know, no student loans, none of that stuff, because mm. uh, my parents couldn't have afforded to send me. So, you know, wasn't I lucky there? And then I went to uh, the BBC. And again, I think the thing I feel worried about you know, generations now is it's all so much more uncertain. I mean, I think we were a lucky generation who felt, you know, we were going to end up being employed, you know, um, you didn't think you weren't going to end up being employed. And and the BBC was tough to get into. The, I mean, the training scheme, I think there were 400 people applying or something like that. And there were six of us got through. I have to say, we've just had a reunion 50 years ago. Uh, we all joined 50 years. Where wow. the hell is that going? And uh, we had all the training in television and in radio, in journalism, in law, all sorts of things. And then we were sent off on uh, attachments for a variety of places. And I was really lucky enough to go to Belfast. And um, I love going to Northern Ireland now. I, I, I like it enormously. Belfast is transformed. But then you were going into what was effectively a war zone um, called the Troubles, of course. Mm. Um, and to go from Oxford, where you've been doing a lot of theory, a lot of reusing stuff. BBC, where you were doing a lot of training and, again, a lot of theory and practice and all that. To go into somewhere where, I remember so vividly, if you took, you had to be careful taking a camera out of the car because if you did that, things could happen, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, people would say, as a camera, okay, let's, let's, now, let's now have a, a, a situation or a riot or anything like that. And suddenly being... You, you had to think so hard about every word you wrote, about what you said, about how you positioned things, because it could lead to, to something catastrophic. From your own personal well, point of view, as well as from the, the BBC's responsibility. Well, that, but to be honest with you, you're more thinking about what, what could the result on other people be of you getting something wrong? And, you know, could it be a riot or worse? Um, I mean, it's your own personal safety, of course, as well. But... When you look back now, uh, there's the most brilliant series on the BBC about uh, about Northern Ireland with people just talking about the troubles back then. And you sort of forget just how bad it was uh, and how dark it was. Uh, and now, thank God, you know, Belfast, I think, is is a terrific city. Derry is transformed. London Derry, Derry is transformed um, and a beautiful city. And uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's really, really good, I think. So... So, you know, I, you learnt a lot. And to go from the 
academic is the wrong way of putting it, but from that into something very, very real and very hard, I think I, I, I learned a huge amount. I was phenomenally lucky, and um, uh, it was a great experience uh, uh, looking back on it. Uh, and I'm just so relieved now that things in Northern Ireland are are, are not perfect, but so much better, yeah, so much better. Absolutely. So, what attracted you to stay in news? Because you know, we we'll talk about just that you rise through that and being you know director of it uh, within your time at the BBC. But what was the the thing that really attracted you about to news in itself? I think a number of things. I mean, um, w- one is curiosity, and uh, second thing is. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday who is much younger than me, but but had been working on World at One and PM. And I think if you're outside broadcasting, you might not realise this, but the excitement of coming into the office at about 7.30, looking through papers, listening to various programs, and then from about 8.15 onwards, having to put together a programme, you have nothing, put together a programme of, then it was half an hour, then it became 40 minutes, I think, uh, by one o'clock and then do the same thing again at five o'clock in the afternoon. It's brilliant, you know, because you could you just think, wow, what can we do? And how do we schedule the program? And then something happens at five to one or five to five, which means you have to reinvent the whole thing again. So there's a there's a and then the same thing applies in television with Newsnight or the news is there's a visceral excitement, which is a, uh, is a bit of a drug in a way. And and um, I used to love it when stories happen and you could just throw the whole program up in the air and start again and uh, find out what's going on, you know? So there's the excitement uh, uh, of it. And then um, the other thing is, you know, people say, oh, you were in the BBC for 27 years. Truth is, you do so many different jobs. Um, you know, you work, I mean, I was lucky enough to be in the radio newsroom and learn stuff. I went down to Parliament for the first broadcasting experiment. I came back and did uh, World at One today, World Tonight, worked on all those programmes. Then moved across to tele- I took a demotion to go across to television because I wanted to learn about television. So um, I, 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 you know, took a, a cut in status to do that because I, I thought, you know, I want to learn about TV as well. So I went across to Newsnight. I was the output editor every other day throughout the Falklands War. Um, and then after that, uh, there was a big revolution in... Um, in news and kind affairs when john burt came in from the outside and brought together all the disparate bits of news into one big division or directorate as it was then called and i was promoted to to run uh, news so i'd been always been chasing new programs i love setting up new things and then uh then i found myself in this position with no management training by the way suddenly you're running this you know i mean there's it took me i think about two years to to to, to say to them i would quite like some management training uh, and they packed me off to London Business School. And then I went across to Wharton Business School in the States uh, for three months. But that was all kind of, you know, I was already doing the job, really. Mm. And uh, and then I was so lucky to run news for about 10 or 11 years. Mm. Um, and just the other change thing in, which is interesting about this, is at that point, the uh, whole view of, cha- of, of, of how news should be broadcast was beginning to change. Because audiences... You know, we're saying, OK, we'll watch the nine o'clock news as it then was um, or the 5.40 news uh, or the six o'clock news. But technology was changing to make news available whenever you want. So CNN at that point was called Chicken Noodle News. People thought oh, it would never catch on. <laughs> of course it would, because audiences say, why do I have to wait for nine o'clock or now 10 o'clock hmm. for the news? I want it whenever I can. Get it. Well, this would so be around I've... about the start of the Internet as well, I suppose. Yeah, Mid 90s. Yeah. Spot on. So so. It was really, for me, exhilarating to say, how do we match 
what we're doing with the changes in technology, which is allowing us to give audiences what they want, you know, effectively when they want it. And so that meant we, you know, I set up a number of things. It was Five Live, uh, News 24, as it then was called. And and then the thing that everybody said, oh, that'll never catch up, <laughs> which is BBC News Online. And the, the, the key to this, because it was people saying to us, there's not enough news to keep going for 24 hours a day, which kind of misses the point. Mm. Uh, and there's also the stresses on people saying, well, you know, I'd quite like to spend the day crafting something carefully for 10 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night, it was then was. And now I'm having to sort of go and broadcast live and do all that sort of stuff. So it, it, it was a huge revolution in the way people work. Mm. And we were changing to match what our audiences wanted us to do. And, and I think that's... It's funny, what I learned from that was, uh, and I apply it to organisations that uh, I'm lucky enough to be working with now, which is you've got to start outside yourself. You've got to start with how people are consuming what it is you do. And the problem with organisations is the flywheel is so rapid. You know, running, I've got to do this, got to do that, you know. Mm. And the pressures on you are so intense that you've just got to have to look outside that and say, look, if we've got to change then we have to change to match how people are seeing us and, and consuming or, or enjoying what we do. And I think that outside perspective is phenomenally important. And actually in the pressure of just running things is kind of really difficult to get hold of, but you've got to do it. Always look outside at, at what, what's, what's going on, uh, scan the horizon, see what's, and see what's coming up as well, which is uh, important. That's right. So for me, your enthusiasm is obviously just coming through here and, you know, it just says it's it's coming through every pore in terms of really enjoying what you did. One benefit, I don't know if you're aware, actually, because I used to work in financial services and worked in a, uh, one of the major banks. And at the time, um, when TV screens went in banking halls, it actually did a lot to manage, as we're having BBC News, News 24 as was, it did a lot to manage the people queuing up. So if you had a large queue, it actually calmed people down because they could watch the trailblazer at the bottom or watch the subtitles that you put up on the screen. You know, well, that actually, actually helped customer service. Social purpose. This is really good. <laughs> it's a bit like um, when I was at the Opera House, I used to come up uh, from the Bakerloo line every day uh, into Charing Cross Station. And um, uh, TFL, not experimented, but played classical music uh, to people uh, at the tube station because mm. they found oh. it made people feel calm down. And actually, it's really important, that, isn't it? I mean, yes. it's a bit like we discovered if we needed to discover, I mean, I didn't need to discover it, but people discovered the importance of landscape and greenness and all of that during COVID. You know, these are th- things we know, but I've, I've never heard of the news channel being a, a way of calming down queues, but I love it. But it it, but it, 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 it keeps you occupied. It keep, gives you something to look at, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, it, was, I, it wasn't intentional, um, certainly, you know, as far as I was aware, but it was a sort of byproduct, if you like, because it just helped you think, oh, I'll keep my focus on that. I didn't realise that was happening. Cashier number four, please, or whatever. Then, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay, I, right. I suspect what you were doing then is very like... Uh, a news journalist now, which is it's also having to respond quickly. Every situation is difficult, uh, is different uh, and potentially difficult or potentially easy. And you're wrestling with all sorts of issues uh, to do with, you know, not just are you getting it right? It's much more complicated now. Are you getting things right? But but also, are we in the right places? Um, what's the right balance between stuff that you put in a news program? You know, are we getting this right? Are we getting to the big issues, the things that really kind of matter? Or are we on trivia? Um, do we need to, people to feel celebratory about something? 
um, mm. it's really interesting. Absolutely. One question I wanted to ask you, because it's something that I've debated and been asked in the past, and you've done both roles, is what's the difference, whether it be TV or on radio, of a, a producer and an editor? <laughs> it's a ranking thing, really. I mean, I think an editor in the end is, is responsible. So um, if you're editing a, a programme, you're responsible for all the output and making sure that the producers are doing kind of what you want. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of rank. To be honest with you, I think the most important thing in anything in life, really, but particularly in broadcasting of the sort of news programmes that we're talking about, is the team and the makeup of the team. And um, I, 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 you know, never thought there was any particular rank in that. You know, uh, in the rank comes in if you've got a, something really, really difficult, then you'd go to your editor and say, you know, what do you think? Do we do this? Do you do that? Or whatever. But you know, to make a news program work, you just need everybody working together and really coming together to think what is best for this program. How do we kind of like, can you do this? Can you do that? And like, mm-hmm. you know, and and you know, if you look at uh, almost anything, making a production, an opera production, or a ballet, you know. Again, it's how people an orchestra. It's how people come together to do things which they could not do on their own. Um, and uh, when I first joined the BBC, there was a, a man, one of the trainers, who's a deep mid-European uh, accent called Eric, and he said, "Remember that so many people have to work to make you look good when you do your program, and make sure you thank them." And I found that uh, it's always stuck with me. Uh, he was right about that. You know, that getting the team to come together and to work is is important. And if you're leading something, you know, the other top end of an organisation, again, how that team comes together and can talk about things and can discuss things, uh, and you know, the, the, and can be open about it. And and by the way, when things go wrong, can also be open about how you get those things right without feeling endangered or in some ways god if i put my hand up and say i got that wrong i'll be for the chop you know you you've got to get that that culture where a team can work effectively i think yeah what's the difference in that between tv and radio because you said you went off to tv for a bit to sort of see what that was like is what is Um, the difference well then i stayed in tv really um and uh I, i i love television it's so much more complex i mean the thing about radio is it's a bit like this podcast now radio is a conversation and uh, I think that's why podcasts do so well, because it's taken the idea of a radio programme and pushed it further into the informal chat. So you hope, if anyone's listening to this, that they feel they're part of the conversation, if you know what I mean. Mm. In television, you can't feel that because, you, you know, the, the screen is there, you're removed from it. And to make television, I mean, if you want to change a programme on television like Newsnight, when I was running, uh, you know, uh, working on Newsnight, you know, it's so much more complex. So many more people have to 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 know what you want to do. You know, just think about, you know, you've got all the people in the gallery, you've got all the people, the camera people down here, you've got all the people out in the field, you've got so on. Um, it's much, much harder and therefore I think can be less intimate. I mean, well, it obviously is less intimate. On the other hand, the power of pictures is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, I think the power of audio description can be huge. If you think about Seamus Heady doing um, Beowulf and he just starts with a soul, you know, and you're into this story and you're, whoa, you're away. With television, you think of Attenborough, for example, and being able to show you what's happened in his lifetime on this present series, you know, the power of that is is unforgettable. So, so television is such a powerful medium and I love it. And um, I just think they're, they're very different things. And, you know, you, you, you um, just need to recognise that. Yeah, gives that extra dimension, doesn't it? It's you know the, the, visu- the visual. 
Completely. And the thing which unites both and the thing which I think is common to all that we're doing, we're all storytellers, aren't we? We, you know, we want to tell stories and you could write a story, you can do a, an audio story, which, as I said, with, a, with the Heaney and Beowulf, you know, you, 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 there's an intimacy to it, which is stunning. And then you can tell a story with television and you're going to be completely into it uh, if, it's, if it's good. And I, I just think um, uh, it's storytelling that unites all these things. And then you have to adapt it to the, to the art form. Uh, you know, is it a play? Is it a TV drama? Is it whatever? Yeah, yeah Absolutely. So then when it got to 2001, you'd had all that success in putting all those media together, you know, the news channel that is still there, BBC News online app that's you know, turned into an app, it's still there, Five Live, etc. Then you joined the Royal Opera House as chief executive. So probably two questions there. Firstly, why the move? And secondly, I know that you did a lot to bring it to the masses within that. And tell us a little bit about what your strategy was. Yeah. So, so I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll be blunt. I, I, I um, uh, there I was age 48 or something or 49, 50. And um, uh, John Burt left as director general. I put my name forward to be director general. I didn't get it. And I thought, um, uh, I think I was at that point 49. And I thought, what do I do? Do I kind of stay on here? And Greg Dyke was very nice and said, stay on, run news, there's a lot to do and all that. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. But hang on. And, uh, you know, I'd done 27 years of BBC and I thought, I'll just snip around and see whether I can do something completely different. And um, the Royal Opera House had been through some crisis, uh, well, a series of crises. And I ended up finding myself being offered the job, the fifth chief executive in four years at the Royal Opera House, because I love music. I loved opera. To be frank, I, I, I enjoyed ballet, but didn't know a great deal about it. So the ballet company were fantastic at teaching me a whole lot of stuff. And uh, I absolutely loved it. And it was one of those kind of Shakespearean things where all the stuff that was being said about the Opera House was, was you know, basically bad. They'd taken a lot of money from the, from the lottery and, you know, it was being wasted, as it were, on these very tough, toughy people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, no, hang on. You walk into this place. It's full of amazing creative people doing, working their socks off to do something really, really good. And these are art forms that, that, that everybody should have access to, you know? So, you know, I had to, first of all, kind of, you know, pull everyone together. And then we had a couple of brilliant artistic uh, people, uh, Tony Papano for, for the opera, Monica Mason for the, um, for, for the ballet, just first rate. And then the question then I had is, so, I mean, how do you run the place and financially and all that sort of stuff? But, but all, and that needed all reconstructing. But also, how do you get this out to as many people as you can? How, how could I, you know, in Birkenhead have accessed the Royal Opera, the Royal Ballet. And, you know, there's a whole lot of things there. We're, we're, you know, price was obviously important. Uh, education was really important. Just the sense that when you walk into the place, you feel welcome because people feel, you know, off put by, you know, these are big doors and it says Opera House. You know, am, am I going to be okay? What do I wear? You know, am I going to be all right? Well, people, you know, all that stuff. You have to um, sort of bash some of those barriers down and then try some experiments. Um, we had big screen relays out into Trafalgar Square and then around the country where people could just watch it for nothing. We had cinema relays where people could come and see it again for a small amount of money, but it's kind of extending reach. We did a deal with the Sun newspaper, which the um, opera writers said will never work. You won't get new people. Well, we got 92% of the people who came. They had to be Sun readers, came. 92% because we did all the data. 
were new to the opera house and had a, and we had to put up with the sun newspaper headlines the 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 opera was don giovanni so the sun did a headline saying well don my son which is ghastly but <laughs> you know we got the people in and um and then i also set up a place where we would make our sets and paint our back cloths and more out at thurrock in the thamesgate way which is you know thurrock is what half an hour on the Fenchurch Street line out out to in, into Essex, but could be a million miles away from Covent Garden and the Opera. Mm. And we set up this campus out there. Kids from the schools could come through uh, and see stuff being made. I hope that would inspire them to think this could be me. You know, I could do stuff backstage uh, or, or do things musical. We set up a chorus out there with the community and, and all this stuff. And the council tax leaflet went out. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is weird, this, but saying, Thurrock home to the Royal Opera House. And I thought, this is magic, you know, because the power of art, culture, the backstage stuff mm. can actually involve a whole lot of communities in things that they otherwise wouldn't have been involved in. So so the strategy was actually dead simple, Ian, really. It's just saying, how do you take great things and give them to as many people as you can and, in, and excite as many people as you can? And if they say, by the way, don't really like it, fine. But they've had the choice. And I think... The important thing with um, education now, which is, it's, I think it's much harder, is, you know, all kids from whatever background, whatever background, should have access to great art, great culture. And they'll either say, not for me, I prefer football, or they'll say, wow, that's something, and it may be light a fire. Or the fire will be lit and the flames will come up 10 years later. And it can allow know. that getting that foot in the door. So, you know, if you were yeah. even just a, perhaps the cleaner in the Royal Opera House, but then you're singing away and somebody says you've got a great voice, then the training can go into that. You know, I mean, as that's how a lot of large organisations work. If you start at the bottom, you know, if yeah. you are good enough, you will rise through, providing you're given the support. Completely right. And there are singers who have done exactly that, Ian. But the other thing which always struck me about the Opera House is you go to the finance department, and, uh, you know, full of people doing finance stuff. And then you'll suddenly find there is someone there who's playing cello for an opera group. And why are they there? Because they're doing finance, but also because they love the idea of being in this creative place. And it is so exciting. I mean, if I got sort of uh, feeling a bit low about things, you know, what am I doing? I'm doing, uh, uh, you know, the, as you do with any job, you, you have your low points. I just wander down and watch a, a rehearsal or whatever, or just go and see the people who are doing the, you know the costumes or the mm. wigs or whatever and you just think ah oh, this is brilliant and you you know it kind of inspires you yeah get out of the office is uh, is a lesson for that absolutely so time after that i think 2013 you went back to the bbc but this time as director general um what what was the difference i mean how you know that's obviously a massive strategic it can be a political role um compared to what you did in the bbc previously how did you feel about sort of going back and approaching it in that way well it's such a good question because I uh, once I'd left the BBC, I didn't want to go back. You know, I never thought of ever going back. Um, and then the crisis happened over Savile and uh, a, a director general uh, who who, who uh, resigned after fifty four days. And then I got the call. Actually, I was I was uh, doing a fundraising event in in Rome and got the call from the then chair of the BBC, Chris Patton. Would I come back and sort out this mess because it, it had it had dissolved really the organisation. Um, and I mean that. Uh, so it was a it was a crisis. So um, I'd done the crisis at the <laughs> Royal Opera House. I'd been through uh, some other crises as well uh, in other organisations. And um, I thought I should go back because I love the BBC. 
And your question is so interesting because I was 10 years away, no, 11, 12, maybe 12 years away, I can't remember, 11 years. And, and people get to say, of course, you know the BBC, so, you know, it, you know, you know what to do, won't you? And I said, well, do you know what? It's changed so much uh, in a decade. So uh, I'm actually an outsider, but I'm also, I know about it, so I'm an insider. So I'm an insider outsider, and that was a really useful position to be in. And uh, I think the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life is to work out how we would respond as an organisation to Jimmy Savile. And, um, you know, I had to decide what we'd say when the final report on how the BBC had acted. I have to say, the BBC was one part of the Savile catastrophe. There were other organisations as well. But, you know, I had to respond for that. And I met some of the people who I thought were victims and said, no, we're not victims, we're survivors. I talked to them at, at some length. Uh, and then was able to, uh, I hope, give an apology for the BBC and what had happened in the past. Uh, and and um, so kind of but then at the same time as doing that, we had to prepare for a new charter renewal. So the BBC's charter came up for renewal. There hadn't been any work done on that. So I had to get that together. I had to put put together a, a team and bring in uh, new people. So it was a, it was a fundamental um, a job of building up the BBC again from... Uh, where it had been but you know um, I did it because I thought it mattered and people were kind enough to say you've got to go back and do this you know you, the BBC needs you as it were you've got to save it uh, and I, I felt that was what I should do so it was uh, part duty I suppose but an awful lot of love for the organisation I think it really matters and I feel strongly that it's a bit you know it's a bit like to to preserve something that you really feel is important you've also got to change mm. it's the leopard isn't it it's that yes. novel um you know and i and i think that's what i felt i felt about the about the bbc absolutely and uh, yeah, obviously that sort of speaks for itself in the way that the the organization has transformed over the last few years um, but you're now in the house of lords as well um we're at the time but within that how do you, 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 your passion is so obvious that's coming through here and for creative arts and so on. How can you get that voice of supporting the creative arts out through Parliament and the House of Lords? Well, I'm sitting on a select committee. Uh, I mean, there are two really good things about the House of Lords. One is the work of the select committees. Uh, these are committees that just look at topics and are not, they don't look at a department, they look across a topic. So I'm on this committee doing communications. I was on a committee looking at youth unemployment, again, interesting. And the reports that come from these cross-party committees should really get a lot more attention because they really are thoughtful and really good. And I think that's a good role of the House of Lords. And I think the second role of the House of Lords is uh, looking at legislation, some of which is loose, to, to put it mildly, to looking at how the legislation can be better framed, better articulated, be clearer. And, you know, there are some brilliant lawyers in the House of Lords who really do make a, a hell of a con contribution there. So, you know, I, I'm now saying I, I'll use my position. For example, I'm working up in Birkenhead uh, that, uh, if I can give a plug, is uh, World is going to be Borough of Culture um, for Merseyside next year. Just to sort of support, advise, whatever I can do to help promote the arts and culture, which I profoundly believe in. And I want to use, you know, my time in the, in the Lords to both do that and also to talk about decent media, good broadcasting, because I think we need things that are almost part of the national infrastructure that we've got to think about, shape, change where necessary, but are part of what makes the UK a great place to be. And, you know, for example, with broadcasting, you saw that in COVID, 
you know, you had an organization. I mean, I was lucky enough to be running the BBC at that time. It could just turn on a sixpence, if people remember what sixpences were, <laughs> turn on a sixpence and start doing things that would really help people. I think, likewise, music was again core to people's well being and getting through COVID and stuff and arts and culture. It was sad that museums and galleries had to close because actually I think that was the time to keep them open and, and you know, let people in a few at a time. Because again, in, in times of trauma, uh, never mind good times, you need art, you need culture. This is who we are. It's what actually helps us to see ourselves and feel part of something bigger. It really matters. Well, as ever time is uh, upon us uh, within the half hour that we have here, I've got one final question for you. And that is, and I ask this of all my guests, and that's knowing what you know now, with all that experience, what one piece of advice would you give that teenage, perhaps even the trainee at the BBC starting off self? I think the biggest thing we've got to do is to hang on to an idea of hope that things can be better and that people can make things better. In other words, show how people coming together, working as teams, working on, it could be music, it could be, I mean, I'm now uh, chairing a social work charity, that you can make life better for more people. And I think that's fundamentally important. And those, those could be small steps or they could be huge steps. But I think we live in a world, sadly, where people think increasingly and sometimes i do too do you know it's all beyond this it's all too big it's all too difficult things are just getting worse and i think we've got to fight back against that and say no there is a, a you know good world for people opportunities should be given to people i mean you know i had opportunities uh, i've been so lucky to have those opportunities because you know i came from a primary school and all, that and all that stuff giving people opportunities in that sense that it can be different is and you can make a difference to make life better for more people and that people can have access to culture, creativity, and they can do new things. All that stuff is is so important. So I think that's a rather long-winded uh, message back to my junior self, but I, I, I do believe that. Hope is so important. Lord Tony Hall, thanks very much for joining Half Our Mentor. That's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you'll agree with me that Tony gave us a fascinating insight into the world of broadcasting, especially relating to the differences between radio and TV news. I was also intrigued to learn about his fork in the road late in his career. It's something that many people face, given how working patterns have evolved over the years. And it was refreshing to hear that the same thought process applies, even at executive level. I've also lost count of the number of my guests who have said they were lucky, in their careers. There's obviously an element of being in the right place at the right time, but you still have to work hard to make your own look in my opinion. My thanks go to Tony for his time and great insights into the world of broadcasting. You can tell he has a great sense of humour and if you'd like to see this in action and you're based in the UK, go and watch the very last episode of the third and final series of W1A on BBC iPlayer. He makes a great cameo appearance involving Doctor Who's TARDIS, but I'll leave you to find out what happens. Well, that's almost it for this series. One thing I did with all of my guests in Series 3 is to ask them some quick-fire questions at the end of each recorded interview, ones that I'd not told them about. This resulted in some hilarious answers, and I'll be releasing a couple of short compilation episodes featuring these as a finale to this series over the next few weeks. Make sure you subscribe to the series wherever you get your pods in order to be notified of their release. 
Well, that's it for this episode, and until next time, bye for now. Thank you.